Genre. everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing D'Artagnan, Aramis, Athos, and Porthos from The Three Musketeers. And joining us for the discussion is returning guest Ryan Helped. Welcome hey, thanks for having me. So glad to have you on. And producer Andrew will be joining us in this discussion, too. Yes, I will. Well, we are discussing specifically the 1993 Disney film, The Three Musketeers, which starred Chris O'Donnell as D'Artagnan, Charlie Sheen as, uh, Sheen as Aramis, Kiefer Sutherland as Athos, Oliver Platt as Porthos, and Tim Cur- Curry as Cardinal Richelieu. And I'm just going to call him Cardinal from now on because my pronunciation of that last name would be all over the place if I attempted <laughs> to, to continue that. Um, Ryan, this was a request from you that we cover this film adaptation of The Three Musketeers why this particular text for you? Yeah, it's um, it's just one of my favorites. I think I've always been a fan of the swashbuckling adventure um, sort of movie. And I, I, you know, probably saw this one not long after it came out. I'm a child of the 80s, so I would have been, you know, I think the perfect age for this when it hit in 1993. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, there's something about it that has persisted in my feeling is it just being one of my favorite movies like i love the the insane pacing of it i love the the <laughs> hammiest of ham performances that um tim curry turns in as cardinal richelieu i i for me the jokes mostly land i think some of the um uh <laughs> sexual politics maybe not so much these days but um i just can't get you know, i can't deny as as 90s as it is and i think we're gonna get into it how much um this movie just works for me and it's just a, a fun rollick and good time yeah, um, I remember seeing this uh, in the theater. I would have been 11 when it came out. Uh, and I have not seen it in a very long time uh, between then. I'm sure I saw it at some point in between seeing it in the theater. And one of the reasons I suggest we do this movie is because a new version of Three Musketeers came out this year in French. And I've never seen Three Musketeers done in French before. And so I haven't watched that yet, but I'm very intrigued. And so it made me want to revisit uh, my first Musketeer love. Yeah, and uh, there are new versions of The Three Musketeers seemingly always in production. This is one of those texts that uh, adapta- you know, adapters can't seem to leave alone. Uh, everyone wants well, to put their spin I, on it. Mean, you can see why, right? Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's a, it, in the same way that, like, Marvel movies became the soap operas, for, or comic books in general became the soap operas for, like, young men, and soap operas themselves fill a particular role for, uh, you know, the people who watch them, like if you look at you know we can get into the history of it i don't want to derail the show too early on but this is a soap opera but with guys stabbing each other constantly <laughs> yes yeah and, and swashbuckling is absolutely the right term uh to describe this and that kind of spirit of adventure translates very easily from the page uh to to film i mean to the stage and also to film uh and this is one of those uh books that has seemingly never not been adapted into the new media. Whenever there's a new media, you know, Three Musketeers is going to find its way uh, into it. And one thing I want to point out is, you know, we're going to call this a novel because that's how it's been collected. But my understanding, having um, read that original work, uh, but it was a while ago and I haven't revisited it, is it was actually written as a serial. So it was published in installments. And I think that that's why it has sort of a comic booky soap opera nature because it was sort of done in the way that modern stories of that ilk are told. 
Uh, yes, it was released initially in a serial form. I saw that when I was looking up trivia, but it was a pretty tight window, actually. I think it was only like a matter of months that it was being released. It just wasn't all out at once. You would just get some oh. chapters at a time, but it wasn't like stretched across years. But it was very much like you were supposed to read this chapter of the adventure and then go pick up the next one. Yeah, Natalie, like and you what said, I... we always we always encounter it as a complete novel. What I never realized uh, growing up was that most of the people portrayed in it, except for, I think, the actual eponymous Three Musketeers are all real. So, like, mm -hmm. there really was a D'Artagnan. There really was a Cardinal Richelieu. There really was a King Louis the... Is this thir 12th, 13th? The uh, um, 14th. 14th, and there really was an Anne of Austria. So, like, a lot of the people we're seeing... Um, in the film, they're, they're portraying historical figures, some of whom are vastly different, Cardinal Richelieu, than Tim Curry's maniacal, villainous performance <laughs> makes them seem. Um, and I think that's also a really fascinating that it's like, it, it's it's really just Alexander Dumas just playing and having fun with hi historical, like the France's own, what was already history to him at the time he was working on this in the mid-1800s. Yes. Uh, Andrew, real quick, do you remember how you first came to this film? Um, of this one or three musketeers, three musketeers uh, in general. Either way, what, you say the candy bar, it? we're going to be disappointed. <laughs> no, I'm sh I'm certain that the three musketeers is thanks to Wishbone. Yeah, because uh, of course. Uh, but this film, Wait, some of our listeners may not be familiar with the genius of Wishbone because it has disappeared from any possible it, media consumption. It, it it's nigh inaccessible. Is it really? Because I, I mentioned it. I was on the iFanboy podcast last week, and I mentioned Wishbone as well. And uh, Connor was completely flummoxed; had no idea what I was talking about. It's, and it's it, a core text of my childhood. <laughs> I actually like, didn't love it as a kid. I was like, eh, not that into this. But um, yeah, but, it's, yeah, it is hard to find. Uh, you you could probably find some online, but it's not in any of the like main streaming services. And and we locally have one of like the best library dvd collections in the world and and they don't have it wow i don't think it ever made it to dvd there were some vhs releases in the 90s but it, it just for any listeners who don't know it has a dog that uh takes the role of characters from class it has a dog who is a lover of literature and the written word <laughs> who's <laughs> constantly reading books <laughs> historical He's... books that uh somehow relate in in uh inherently to the lives of the children he has befriended He's been the Odysseus. Children age far too fast. That is one memory I have. <laughs> yeah, he's been Odysseus. He has been uh, David from David and Goliath. He has been uh, Ichabod Crane. Jonah, wasn't been... there? There was a Joan of Arc one. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah. Robin, Robin Hood, I think, was a classic because it's got him firing the arrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I remember he was he was D'Artagnan uh, in in Wishbone, and then I don't know. I was probably like 10 and we got a vhs copy of this mm -hmm. i think or or it was maybe like a dvd combo pack with like oh now i'm picturing this and cool runnings as a dvd combo pack wow <laughs> which is a weird combo yeah but uh that's what i'm that's what i'm imagining and, and so I, I had you know easy access to it for for my adolescence right all right well let's do some trivia both on the three musketeers uh in general, and this particular film. So The Three Musketeers is uh, generally referred to as an 1844 novel by Alexander Dumas. As we noted, it was serialized before it was collected as a novel. The basic plot of D'Artagnan wanting to join the Musketeers and having an adventure with Aramis, Athos, and Porthos has been adapted many times, but also with many changes, depending on what adaptation uh, you are looking at. But it was first adapted into an opera during Dumas' lifetime. 
in film, there were eight silent film ad- adaptations. Uh, and then after the advent of sound, there have been, at the count that I could find, 23 adaptations so far. Uh, and one of those sound adaptations was a French remake of a silent film ad- version with the same director and cast. Just now they spoke their lines. Uh <laughs> There have been 10 animated versions ranging from a Disney Silly Symphony, a Tom and Jerry, uh, cat and mouse version, an anime, a CGI Barbie version. Uh, this is just one of those texts that in part because it's in the public domain, but then as another part, because it is so fun, uh, gets adapted and twisted into so many different forms. In an introduction to the novel, Dumas writes about coming across a manuscript, Memoirs of D'Artagnan, that was an inspiration for the story. And it's generally agreed that Dumas believed that the story he was he came across, Memoirs of D'Artagnan, he thought that was fiction from a century earlier, and he just kind of was delighted with it and used its premise and the names uh, in his book and then took things in different directions for the story that he wanted to tell. But he kind of, uh, I mean, he acknowledges it at the front, but some people say, like, he kind of plagiarized an awful lot. <laughs> Of this uh, was but plagiarism then, really a concept back then though yeah no uh yeah copyright <laughs> not 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 really enforceable uh but it turns out that later researchers have proven that memoirs of d'artagnan was based on real events and real people and um a lot of the 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 story about an elite king's guard and a scheming cardinal with his own elite guard that was at war essentially with the king's guard those are historically accurate but very romanticized in the novel um as far as this film adaptation, in 1992, Walt Disney, Columbia, and TriStar all announced they were making films of The Three Musketeers. <laughs> and adding to the intrigue of all this, Disney bought a screenplay from David Lowry for $650,000. He had already been hired to develop and write a screenplay of The Three Musketeers for Columbia. <laughs> and then he took Disney's money and gave them his script. Uh, things about that got settled out of court. Columbia never made a film. And then the TriStar version went into pre-production, but then was never made. And some of the cast that ends up in the Disney film were like offered roles in the TriStar version. It was, uh, Three Musketeers was in the air, I guess, (laughs) in 1992. (laughs) Um, the film and the novel have many differences in plot. In the novel, the queen is having an affair with the Duke of Buckingham and the musketeers go to great lengths to prevent the cardinal from revealing this to the king. For example, in the film, uh, you know, the king and the queen are actually going to have a, a pretty good relationship. Um, I, I have a question. It's if you were in charge of a film, you know, it's somehow involved in film production in 1993 and you were going to be making a Three Musketeers film. Who would you want to cast? You, you've got these four core leads of the adventurers. Who, who are you going to be looking to? I see. I, I really like this cast. So it's hard for me. It, it does become <laughs> difficult to picture something else. There's one that when I heard it, I was like, I could see it. Um, the first choice for D'Artagnan was Brendan Fraser, which I almost, okay. When, when I saw that question, that was where I went, but like, I was just on here for George of the jungle. So I, yeah. I got to mix it up a little bit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, but but once you hear that, you're like, I could I could see that it doesn't I mean, feel yeah. too far out of field. Jonathan Taylor Thomas ha- had that hair, but he might have been a little young then. Yeah, I think, mm-hmm. I think so. Um, I, I I found that this uh this version I did on this rewatch. Um, I've seen this movie so many times. I, I'm gonna be honest. I'm gonna level. Can I level with you both? I almost didn't rewatch this because I thought I could just do it from memory. <laughs> you but, just, just had it. But then I then I rewatched it because I because I, I wanted to be. I wanted my. It was too important to my integrity. 
um that i that i realized as a podcaster you 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 have a certain bar that you've established for yourself that you must clear right and well yeah i just i I wanted it to be fresh i didn't want there to be anything i forget i noticed one joke that i'd never caught before which i will i will reveal at the appropriate time okay um but uh yeah i had the i had the brendan fraser thought um it's hard because like you kind of need you need like one oh the, the thought i had was this movie is sort of a precursor to Point Break because it's like a dumb, young, hot idiot who gets in with this band of brigands who get up to like crazy rousing adventures against the state. And <laughs> Right? Yeah. So so are you saying Keanu Reeves would have been kind of a thinking good... Maybe, maybe Keanu. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you say it in, in the time period, I could definitely see it. Uh, he was not on the list. So on... Uh, Wikipedia, they have a list of a- actors who were considered for roles. They do not assign roles for which ones, but amongst the list are William Baldwin, Jean Claude Van Damme, Al Pacino, Johnny Depp, Carrie Elwes, Robert Downey Jr., and Gary Oldman were all apparently reached out to by Disney. For I mean, Carrie Elwes had I, that had to be like Athos, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like I remember learning at one point that Charlie Sheen was the big get for the casting, and and he was the one that they were really like the movie was almost built around him back in the day. But now, when you look at how stacked this cast is with like mm-hmm. actors of that generation, it's hard to believe that he was the the sole the draw. One. Not that he's not yeah. a draw. Um, and I remember seeing an e- interview with Kiefer Sutherland, who just like, I think because his dad is Donald Sutherland, he's been in Hollywood for his entire life. And I think there are certain people who are just like very comfortable on on camera, on film, and he's one of them. And so he was giving this interview where he just talked about, yeah, when we were doing Musketeers, those horses really hated Charlie. And apparently Charlie Sheen could not ride a horse to save his life and missed <laughs> missed out on all like they had to because Kiefer Sutherland's dad is Donald Sutherland. Kiefer Sutherland grew up doing like horseback riding for actors, sword fighting for actors. Like he'd had all the training leading up to this from like a classic Hollywood kind of stance. And then, you know, became the lead of this cast of characters who all needed to know how to do that stuff really well. And then hotshot Charlie Sheen, who skipped out on all that because he was filming another movie. Mm um it does say that uh johnny depp after he he didn't get in the disney one he was cast in the tristar version that then never went into production <laughs> johnny depp i think we can all agree johnny depp found his swashbuckling sweet spot and we yes. don't need we yeah. don't need to worry yeah. about him i think mm-hmm. he did he did okay mm-hmm. and I, i'm assuming like al pacino and gary oldman probably would have been for cardinal and i want tim curry for that role so I, I, that's the one role i think you absolutely cannot recast i could yeah. see maybe going like a robin williams for porthos but this is also right around when they were doing hook and like i don't want to recast robin Williams and Hook, so let's just leave it alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Disney built a lot of anticipation for Ooh, this a Russell Crowe Aramis would have been this era, like early 90s Russell Crowe as Aramis. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That would have been smoldering good time. <laughs> Definitely. I, just, I, I, mean, recently, I recently watched Quick and the Dead for the first time, and yeah, that, that like, I mean, I think Russell Crowe's a, a fantastic actor, and I love most things he's in, but that era of him with the long hair and everything, uh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, Disney announced that the test screenings for the Three Musketeers had the best positive responses in the history of Disney film. Um, and then they released it to critics <laughs> and it's Rotten Tomato scores 30%, which curmudgeons, I think that's a little low, but maybe they oversold or overhyped the film when they said this is the best thing think we've I, never made. <laughs> I don't know that Rotten Tomato, I don't know their their methods, but I don't believe that Rotten Tomatoes the ratings that they have for movies before they themselves existed as a website, I take with huge grains of salt because I don't know that their collection and search algorithm is sufficient to pull 
all the data necessary to get mm-hmm. the same level of precision that they get on modern movies. Yeah, and I think there's some level of the uh, the publishers and the critics themselves have to submit stuff even for the older films, uh, which some people just why would they bother <laughs> I, think I mean i'm not gonna lie i was a little surprised pl- pleasantly so but a little surprised this was even on disney plus like because i was like did they did they bother I, is am i the only person who loves this movie i i got worried for a second i was like yeah. i assume i'm just gonna pull this up on disney plus but you never know yeah yeah oh yeah we were we were made sold a lot of promises about these streaming surfaces uh and what was going to be available and sometimes stuff is just not there i think the best way to sum up the era of this film this particular film adaptation is the first end credit at the end of the movie is what the um what the song the like the the co-released you know pop ballad mm-hmm. song that they were trying to market to go with the movie and i'm like oh that's that is specific to that era of yeah of well, oh, oh well just just a second i've got that in my trivia here so uh the movie's gonna open at number one it's first weekend and a a big old 11 million dollars and it will end up making 53 million at the domestic box office 111 at the global box office is gonna be his final haul which is um for that era you know that's a that's a uh, solid showing um now that needs to be the, like the opening weekend for a box office hit or people are going to start saying oh it's a, it's a flop uh, but at the time i think that's a respectable showing uh and you mentioned the pop song so brian adams wrote a pop song for the end credits performed it with rod stewart and sting it was a hit and reached number one on uh the pop charts very much this felt like Hey, remember when Brian Adams did uh, Robin Hood, <laughs> Prince of Thieves song that uh, that was everywhere? Can we, can we re- recapture that? Which Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is not a movie I love as much as Three Musketeers, but and it's not quite a swashbuckling movie. But I, I also this is a real life Ryan. I also happen to practice archery. And so it is a, a movie I do enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh this was interesting to me. Marvel Comics released a comic book adaptation of the Disney film, not of <laughs> the Three Musketeers novel, but there is a Marvel Comics Disney's Three Musketeers comic book floating uh, out there. That I did not know. I'm fascinated to go track that down. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. Well, before we jump into the summary of this film, listeners, we want to thank you for downloading this episode, and we especially want to thank any of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonists and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our monthly quick casts, which are short episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss on the show. All right, on to the plot of the film. In 1625, D'Artagnan is off to join the musketeers the king's guards and a group his father fought for but he is detained by gerard who is an over-the-top fop who is trying to defend his sister's honor uh d'artagnan is the better fencer but when gerard's brothers arrive d'artagnan flees uh captain rochefort a member of the cardinal's guard disbands the musketeers only three musketeers refuse to relinquish their duties athos porthos and aramis in Paris, D'Artagnan stops a man he assumes is a bandit, following two women, but he was actually one of the queen's bodyguards. The women were the queen's ladies. Uh, D'Artagnan flirts with one of the ladies. Later, while running away from Gerard and his brothers who are still pursuing him, D'Artagnan offends each of the remaining three musketeers individually and sets a duel with each one that afternoon. At the first duel, D'Artagnan sees his next two appointments, but promises to be with them shortly. Uh, however, the Cardinal's guard 
arrives to arrest the musketeers and d'artagnan joins them in winning a battle that they were outnumbered in the musketeers then leave and advise d'artagnan to leave paris instead he picks a fight with the cardinal's guard and is arrested while breaking out of jail he overhears the cardinal's scheme with lady de winter ordering her to take a secret treaty to the duke of buckingham uh the cardinal wants an alliance with england uh, to overthrow the french king after hearing this d'artagnan is captured again and taken to be executed but the three musketeers have taken the place of the executioners and rescued d'artagnan an intense chase ensues d'artagnan reveals the cardinal's plot to the musketeers while they elude the cardinal's guard eventually the musketeers catch lady de winter who was married to Athos at one point. As she's about to be executed for treason, Athos begs her forgiveness. She is moved and tells the musketeers that the cardinal plans to kill the king at his birthday celebration. Then she throws herself to her death. Athos, Porthos, and Aramis send messages to the disbanded musketeers. The cardinal has a sniper taking aim at the king during the birthday celebration. D'Artagnan finds the sniper and makes his shot miss. The musketeers reveal themselves, and the cardinal says the musketeers planned the assassination. A giant fight between the musketeers and the cardinal's guard commences. The musketeers and the cardinal's guard fight. The cardinal takes the king and the queen hostage and shoots Aramis. But Aramis has a cross that stops the musket ball. Uh, D'Artagnan duels with Rochefort, who disarms him and gloats about killing D'Artagnan's father. Constance throws a sword. Uh, Constance is the queen's lady uh, from earlier that he was flirting with. She throws a, a sword to D'Artagnan, who kills Rochefort. The cardinal takes the king and queen to an underground boat, but the boatman is Aramis, who cardinal believed was dead, but we know is alive. Uh, the king punches the cardinal. The musketeers are reinstated. D'Artagnan is offered anything he wishes by the king, and he chooses to become a musketeer. The end. All right, gentlemen, what do we want to make sure we say about this film? Because I could see this conversation just kind of sprawling in, in, in multiple directions. So is there anything that you want to make sure we note before uh, we, we maybe uh, meander along uh, in our, in our analysis of this film? Can I offer my very particular item? Please do. Okay. I think this movie has in a way that one, you just wouldn't have today for a number of reasons. And and two is just really impressive. A lot of horses and a lot mm -hmm. of horse stunts. Mm -hmm. Like there's like 30 horses on screen at some point. Like I think the only other time I've seen that many horses in a movie on screen at the same time is like Lord of the Rings. Like it is an uncommon amount of like horses doing chases, doing stunt work. Like the, the riders are falling off the horses. The riders are getting, like jumped off the horses, like someone's jumping into the rider and knocking them off the horse. One of the horses gets tipped over. I was watching mm -hmm. it with my wife, Kestra, and, and she um, she has ridden horses. She she worked in a stable as a teenager. And one of the stunts where where the rider clearly pulled the horse down to the side, she's like, that's super dangerous. Like, there's almost no way that they would do that stunt today, because like if the horse lands on the guy's leg, it's crushed. Mm -hmm. And so just like I just wanted to shout out. It's like there's a lot of horses. And a lot of good horse stunt movie work. I will also note a similar uh, thing that struck me. They make full use of very large floppy hats yes. <laughs> that the Musketeers wear <laughs> in order performers. to do a lot of these horse stunts. Uh, like there'll be a close up of, uh, you know, one of our, our actors faces uh, and they're, they're kind of bouncing in place. And then it's a wide shot and there's a hat way down over their head mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're leaning forward. I mean, I would have been so nervous as an extra on some of those sets because they're, they're like trotting or galloping horses through like crowded spaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, 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 Cavalier, which I say pointedly as, you know, people on horseback. Cavalier na nature with which, like, D'Artagnan, as a guy who wants to defend the people, or I guess he, maybe D'Artagnan doesn't want to defend the people, he just he wants, wants to defend the king. Just the king. 
yeah, he's more than willing to just go and like absolutely wreck these peasants' livelihood with his horse chase. <laughs> I no, I had that thought too, and I also um, I think something that I th- have thought about more in more recent watches is because this is a pre CGI era film, and because I don't know if they just didn't feel like using a lot of blue screen, green screen, it they filmed it on location, and it looks really good for that. Yes. Like I, it and that's just something that always, yeah. I mean, you you feel the reality of both the horses that they're using and and the stunts. Like you, you feel the weight of it in a way that, um, as, as good as CGI has gotten, it, there's it, it doesn't land quite as um, realistically as knowing these are people out there on location doing these stunts and you know throwing their bodies across each other and you know doing the fights in the way that they're doing them. So I just think as silly as as some of the movie comes across, like the fact that when they're they're in towns, they feel like real structures, real buildings, real people. When they're in like the palace, it feels like they're not on a soundstage. They're actually in a place filming a thing. Like I, I think that lends um, maybe not an, an added layer of reality to it, but it just lets you fall into the film more but these are all more technical aspects of of the movie making so if we want to get into more of the the protagonist <laughs> side of things um you know i i find uh do you want to go in the order that you have in the show notes or should we what's what's the best uh, way a, any character you want to start with we, we i'm good to we'll make oh. sure we hit all the four main ones and then uh that's interesting okay well i guess we, we could start with dart or oh boy d'artagnan I think the, the for me the unintentionally funniest line of this entire movie, and I don't think it's meant to be funny by the filmmakers, is when D'Artagnan meets Constance, the the queen's uh, handmaiden, and she asks his name, and he says his name is D'Artagnan, and we know from the historical record that I don't think we've said it on the show because I think we're all intimidated by the French. I am going to try. His name was Charles de Bats de Castelmore de Tarnian. And he was, I think, from Gascony. And so the line that just gets me every time is she asks his name and he just says D'Artagnan, which is, and then she just says, oh, D'Artagnan. And it should be noted, everyone is speaking with an American accent at, mm-hmm. at best, right? There's no there's no attempt at a French accent. There's a few British accents, but for people who are actually British. Um, mm-hmm. So he just says D'Artagnan in his Chris O'Donnell American accent, not too dissimilar from mine. And she says, D'Artagnan, a Gascon? And I'm like, what information did he give you that told you he was from Gascony? I'm so... (laughs) Um, Gascony being a region in southwestern France uh, up on the border with um, Spain. So I think, you know, there's there's like a, a kind of... Basque adjacent, so like sort of as Basque are to the Spanish, Gascons are to the French. Mm-hmm. Um, it was his accent that gave him away. I think. Well, yeah, and I wonder <laughs> yeah. if like the surname D'Artagnan maybe does if that is his last name and not his first name, which you know if you know that he's a real person, maybe that does tell you something about like who his father was. Like maybe the D apostrophe means like of some region of Gascon, right? So, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know. I have not been able to satisfy that. My wife is a Francophone <laughs> and I could, I could ask her, but she would just laugh at me for caring this much. So we're going <laughs> to just going to move past it. No, I didn't, I didn't catch you know, clock the line really. Uh, but as soon as you lay it out, it's like, yeah, you know, in maybe in the French adaptation, there's something about the accent uh, or, or, you know, some other tell. Uh, but as you noted, these, uh, you know, are, the, the film has made the choice that this is going to be, 
unconcerned with uh, <laughs> dialect and, and, and accent, um, which is not uncommon uh, for these. I, I'm sure there exists like Three Musketeers adaptations that for whatever reason, every actor chose to do a British accent. Uh, you know, they're speaking English because uh, so often that's where we go to for kind of our swashbuckling uh, stories from this era is, is British accents. Uh, but there's, this one, it there's is- one, there's one line that I find conspicuous for, um, an attempt at Oliver Platt just having a little fun with the line towards the final battle. And he says, come D'Artagnan, we're saving the king. <laughs> and it's like the only time Oliver Platt does a French accent. But I also find the line an absolute delight because he's inviting D'Artagnan to come and save the king with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so D'Artagnan as a character, he is very much like this embodiment, almost like a platonic ideal of just romantic adventure, just coming of age. You're going to go make your, find your place in the world and you're going to have uh, like daring do and, um, and uh, fights and uh, you're going to, you're, you're going to fall in love, you know, along the way, like all, all the beats that we kind of think of when we say like romantic swashbuckling adventure, that's D'Artagnan. But he's uh, so, he's so dumb. Do we need yeah. to talk about how dumb he is? Well, like he, yeah. he does come off as, as really thick. <laughs> He's like, how do I keep getting into fights with people? <laughs> what is happening? Like, D'Artagnan, you throw, you you see people riding horses together, and you start just throwing sacks of flour off a windmill. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's your first response. <laughs> uh, yeah, he. I I think if. I mean, whenever we get another version, if there's someone who does a version that's like maybe a little bit more, uh, you know, postmodern winking at the audience, they will play D'Artagnan like Ken in the Barbie movie. Uh, Yeah, well, and so I I mean, having read the novel, like this is not a terrible adaptation of D'Artagnan as a character. I think the other characters stray more in the way they're portrayed. The pirate backstory, right? But but like D'Artagnan in the novel, he he is... I think the thing that Chris O'Donnell does with the character or this adaptation does with the character that is distinct from the novelization is it's, it's a little sillier. Like the violence in the three Musketeers novel is kind of stark. And I think that's partly to the writing style of, you know, Victorian era France. I don't know if you can say Victorian era France cause they weren't part under queen Victoria, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a scene where somebody screws up making an omelet for D'Artagnan. I know French people take their omelets seriously, but he kills the guy. <laughs> so like it's, you know, the level of violence and, and his relationship with Countess de Winter in the novel is a months long affair that he keeps hidden from Athos because he eventually realizes that like, Oh, this is Athos's ex, you know? So like it, the, again, which gets back to that soap opera thing. So I think they're, I think the way they play his dumbness in this movie and the dumbness and his propensity for violence, both in a skilled manner and maybe a, a uninformed manner is um, cuter, which is a Disney movie. So why wouldn't it yeah. be? Yeah. I mean, he's, he kind of, I don't think Chris O'Donnell's choosing to play him this way, but he's just on the cusp of a himbo. I, mm-hmm. I was, I was going to maybe bring up the, whether or not the word, yeah. Whether or not the yeah. term himbo needed to be in the discussion. And I had the same kind of thought where it's like, I don't think he's quite, there but he's close yeah i think chris o'donnell is he, he's not playing like like i know this character is dumb like he's playing i'm a character mm-hmm. on an adventure it's only when you kind of step back and you go through some of the choices that are made through this is like this this is not a man who is necessarily thinking through the consequences of his actions if this were played by brendan frazier i think he <laughs> he would be a himbo <laughs> but like there, there was a scene I never noticed it. Uh, this was another one of the new observations I had this rewatch. When 
he arrives at the duel with Athos. Meet me behind the Luxembourg at one o'clock. Or I guess that's the duel with Porthos, I think. Um, and Athos takes off his cloak and reveals that he's a musketeer. And he goes, you're a musketeer? You're all musketeers? And he's like blown away that he's like bumped into three musketeers in a day. You met Athos at musketeer headquarters. He mm-hmm. was the one who told you they were disbanded. You maybe should have clocked that he was probably a disbanded musketeer and was kind of salty about it. Like, <laughs> yeah, there there were definitely some clues uh, that that he, he there's also so many to. scenes in this movie where like a smaller group of bad guys arrives to try to take on the musketeers and fail. This is another just like logic jump that I <laughs> that hit upon me. A small group of bad guys shows up fails to defeat the musketeers and are immediately preceded by a larger group of bad guys that if the first group had just waited, <laughs> they could have gone together. Right. The, the movie would fail because the, mus- the musketeers and D'Artagnan would be killed. But, um, you know, like C- Colonel Rochefort and more guards show up immediately after the three initial musketeer leaves after the duel scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that happens I, I, multiple times in the movie. <laughs> and, and this is, uh, again, like D'Artagnan, um, more than once, it's like you, you're not going to win this fight. And he just does not care. <laughs> it's, it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm in, uh, I'm going to try, try yeah. this. And, and then, you know, we, we get like, uh, in the case of the, uh, the larger Cardinals guard arriving too late to, to fight all the musketeers. D'Artagnan's just like, well, I'm just going to take you all on. <laughs> and, and his interrogation scene with the Cardinal is always, is one of my, always one of my favorite scenes in terms of just like, you know, I wouldn't tell you where the musketeers were. And, like I don't, I don't know where they are. And if you did, I still wouldn't tell you. You know, he's just so like petulantly defiant, and almost it's almost it's less of like a himbo, and he's more just like still a teenager. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, full of that uh, unearned confidence, vim uh, and vigor. Yes. Um, all right, uh, Andrew. Do you have anything else you want to add about D'Artagnan? I, I'm sure there's going to be other things that that come up. Mm-hmm. Um, do we I, think I, he actually slept with Gerard's sister? Because they always uh, are a little coy about that. He's like, listen, Gerard, nothing happened. You just want to give me a little something to remember me by. He, he's not like noble in his chastity. No, no. He's totally think, game. Yeah. So, and I, well, the thing I was going to mention was like his romance with Constance. It's like, she's only in like three scenes of this movie. Yeah. She probably has six lines and they only share one scene together before she hands him a sword at, in and, the finale. And, and Constance's second scene comes not the immediately after, but like there's one scene in between Constance and second scene and D'Artagnan wooing the, the barmaid. Yeah. And so it, it, the romance of that feels really weird, but it's not about romance. It's about, you know, the, the manly art of wenching, which again, I think is <laughs> it's, I, 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 I have to admit, I like the scene because I like the actors playing off each other. It's super cringy that like <laughs> it's, adult grown men talking about wenching in a tavern in the 1990s. Like I, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I can hold, hopefully the, the, the listeners and viewers will permit me to hold two conflicting ideas in my head at once as sort of to the, the, how well some of this stuff works in the light of day today, but you know, mm-hmm. I still have fun with it in the yeah, context. I of mean, it, there's a lot of this film that feels very nineties. It is also adapting a story from long before, uh, you know, we, we got centuries of, of issues of gender politics where a, a, as a modern uh, viewer, he might pause and say, mm, is this the right choice? <laughs> right, right here. <laughs> uh, it, it, so, so we're going to move on from D'Artagnan. I was thinking like, okay, I don't know if this movie thinks D'Artagnan's the main character because there's, a, I think a, a solid 20 minutes where they make 
Athos, the main character. And Porthos is never the main character, but he's always good for screen time. Yeah, like he he, get, he, he looms more large. Cut. He looms yeah. large in every scene he's in. I think. No, I completely agree with you. And I think. And, and I think Tim Curry might get the most screen time. And deserve it. I mean, yeah, amazing. I mean, if you have Tim Curry, yeah. But, Tim, but if like, you have Tim Curry turning in this performance, um, but I, but I think uh, from what I understand about like the whole casting of Charlie Sheen and, and all that, yeah, uh, he's like the biggest actor at the time. <laughs> I wonder, like, if they thought this was going to be an Aramis movie. And then the script made it with the script had it as a little bit more of an entertaining movie. And then as they were making it, they were like, "Ooh, this is an Athos movie. <laughs> like this is definitely <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland's show." And uh, I don't know. Um, hold on. There, there's one note I remember. I'm trying to find it real quick. So it says um, Charlie's. Uh, this is not what I thought it was going to be. It says Charlie Sheen was offered the role of Porthos before they moved him over to Aramis. Hmm. Like I thought, maybe he was gonna be it was gonna be Athos because I remembered that he wasn't offered a different one of the roles. I, I mean, I guess he he was doing like Hot Shots, so he was doing some broad comedy uh, at, at the time, and so maybe that's why they were thinking Porthos for him. Maybe, and I do I do find this movie this movie is very superficial in the way that it weaves together relationships. Like I always thought it was cool and clever, like how everyone has a relationship with everyone else, like in terms of characters. And to me, it was almost like, it was always kind of like the X-Men, right. You know, the mm-hmm. fact that like, Oh, Aramis used to be Athos's students, but Athos used to be married to Countess de Winter. But you know, it, it, and D'Artagnan is the son of the guy who Rochefort. And it's all like, everyone's got a connection to every other person, but there's, they're a little light. And the mm-hmm. one connection that I always felt was deeper and more, abiding at least in this telling of the story is porthos and aramis Mm -hmm. i really love their sort of bromance in this particular telling of of the tale and we can get into that more we get each of those characters but maybe that's a a transition uh yeah well i mean why don't we talk about porthos i i think he's it's oliver platt just having fun in some ways uh where it's uh he is the comedic relief in a lot of these scenes i mean every one of these actors gets some comedic beats uh you know in the in the film the film very much wants the audience to be laughing along uh with this adventure and often when something is starting to get heavy they they turn to porthos to lighten the mood um for us he does crush like seven men under a chandelier that he's like he, he like jumps on a chandelier (laughs) <laughs> and crushes. I don't, know, I don't know if yeah i mean so like the idea of porthos's theme being comedy there's definitely an argument to be made but i think porthos is more just like lust for life right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah he he's just, more chaotic he is just so happy to be he loves his life he's clearly got a past that is very different from the life he's living now but you know in his dialogue scenes he is enjoying getting the better of his whoever he's talking to in his fight scenes he's enjoying it you know like breaking the guy's sword and just saying, and then throwing the bolo and it's like god i love my work you know like he's and and when he like kisses his hand after shooting the sniper he's just mm-hmm. he is having a blast and yeah, he's only, got he's got gadgets mm-hmm. and the only time that you see porthos kind of drop the the veneer is when aramis gets shot and you know, I, I'm, I I like this movie because it's a fun romp. I don't have like a huge emotional attachment to to the characters because it's a little superfluous. But there's a moment where like Porthos runs through the middle of a battle and disrupts like three or four sword fights just with his bare arms to get to his buddy that he's just seen drop. And I think that's kind of special. And I like that, like of all the characters in this movie, 
there are multiple times where they have a little moment where Aramis and Porthos just kind of tap swords. And it's, and it's like their way of giving each other a high five of just like, I got you, buddy. Like, we got this. We're going to, you know. And um, so I, I think much like many comic relief characters, like there's a depth to Porthos and like, you know, why is he trying to be funny all the time? Why is he constantly lying about where he gets all this stuff? You know, this, this sash was a gift to me from the queen of America. Um, that's, I mean, that's something my wife and I quote all the time because we just find it funny. You know, this ax was a gift to me from the Tsarina of Tokyo. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. I find Porthos to be a character who both is very funny, but there's a depth there that this movie doesn't fully explore, but I am engaged by as a, as a viewer. Yeah. The, the film is not interested in necessarily building out like deep emotional resonant relationships between characters. This film is about let's, let's have fun watching these actors have fun <laughs> in a lot of ways, whether it's Tim Curry chewing scenery uh, as a villain or Oliver Platt, uh, you know, just telling wild lies and tales. Um, but did, that... did any of the Aramis Porthos scenes like get, oh. speak to you guys on a higher level? Yeah. The, yeah, yeah, I, I, say, okay. I, I took it... note of the, like the tapping swords mm-hmm. um, like multiple times where it's like, okay, these two, like Athos does his own thing. These two stay together until they decide to do their own thing. Yeah, I was gonna say the, the film's not terribly interested in deepening, the, uh, in deepening those relationships. This is the one exception. Uh, I, I wish it maybe had been willing to to go even further uh, with it, but I, I think you're right in identifying that if there is those moments of uh, of like more emotional depth, they it tends to. Uh, I think it is between Charlie Sheen and and Oliver Platt more so than like uh, you know D'Artagnan and Constance, <laughs> you know. Or, <laughs> I mean, the other one is May uh, is some of uh, Athos with uh, uh, the Countess. There, there's some of that as well. Um, but the the like the bond, the bond of brotherhood. It's more uh, we just kind of accept that it's there rather than we see uh, what has made it so deep. Well, and I think it's a little interesting there. that like, well, and you know, we learn that they've all gone through some stuff together, mm-hmm. um, and I think they're all dealing with it in their own ways. You know, Aramis turns to his faith. Porthos turns to his fun loving nature. Athos turns to brooding and I, Sutherland I, really puts on a good brood. He puts on a this. great brood. I, I just sort of think that like uh, Ar- Aramis and Porthos are both happy to be like Athos. You get to be the leader because being the leader, nobody wants to be Leonardo. It's a, it's a drag. So you be Leonardo. <laughs> We're going to be uh, Donatello and Michelangelo res- respectively. And mm-hmm. I think, eh, uh, let's see. Definitely uh, Michelangelo. I think D'Artagnan is Raph because I think he's the most rageful. It, yeah, he's 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 certainly the most like spontaneous or, yeah. or at least um just, like, just, at least just throwing himself through. in. Yeah, I think I clocked them all correctly here. Yeah, I think um, you got it. Thank you. Appreciate that. I had not done yeah. that. I had not. This is. I promise. I'm not like looking at a sheet of paper, being like, oh god, I got to read this right. No, I, that was in the moment. Um, but I think I think. Porthos and Aramis are ride or die with Athos as, but they're also kind of like, we are also a little like he's the leader, but we're also a little bit protecting him from himself because he doesn't always make the best decisions for him. Um, Joe, you That's probably have... why they show up at his first duel, right? I mean, we never learn why, why, what, how, and why do Porthos and Aramis learn that Athos is having a duel? They just... Yeah, and it's mm-hmm. not like uh, D'Artagnan has a second or anything like that, where we're going to follow the formal strictures of dueling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That we all know, that we don't need, um, let's not even get into it, because we all yeah, know, know, we <laughs> all know the formal strictures of dueling, it's fine. <laughs> uh, Joe, in the past, you've talked about, um, in Star Trek, uh, Spock, uh, Kirk, and McCoy being... Ethos, Logos, and Pathos. Right? Yes, that, and... That Kirk- 
Kirk's lo- uh, is Pathos, Spock is Logos, and, and Koi is is uh, Pathos. Yeah, and and I think it the the fact that that Ryan pointed out the Ninja Turtles comparison and saying it's like, well, Donnie and Mikey go together, like they just do, and that's what you have with with pa- uh, Porth, not Pathos, Porthos, and and, <laughs> and Aramis is They're not making it easy on you, man. You're doing yeah, great. It's, it, it's it's the Donatello and Michelangelo is like. I don't know why, but the fun-loving, spontaneous person goes with the most cerebral person. They have to go together. Well, you end up with a lot of, uh, you know, the uh, in terms of like the Teenage Mutant Turtles, that's where you get something like the comic relief is, you mm-hmm. know, Donatello trying to do something really complex. And then, you know, Michelangelo just you know, have, having fun over there and and inevitably causing chaos and the spiritual sequel to this movie which i was not planning on bringing up but i think it's relevant here um man in the iron mask is all of these same characters at the end of their careers Mm -hmm. and i am of course referring to the 1998 film with leonardo Uh, DiCaprio. DiCaprio. Mm -hmm. leonardo DiCaprio twice you get Mm -hmm. double leonardo DiCaprio. sorry spoiler (laughs) but there's there's the the comedic duo in that movie is also Aramis and Porthos, played by two completely different actors, completely different script, really different tone to that movie, but they are still the comedic duo that that you know have things that you find yourself laughing at while they're getting up to their hijinks. Um, all right, Charlie Sheen's Aramis. Since we are talking, we you know we just talked about Porthos. Some uh, uh, this is the character that. To a degree, uh, I mean, especially when we first meet him, we're seeing some of this moral conflict uh, on display. Of, <laughs> of uh, I mean, you, you he's know. just he's horny priest. Yeah, yeah, I'm a man of faith, but uh, there's a lot of beautiful women. Did you guys see Fleabag uh, season two? No, I have not. Okay, there's a, there's a character who is also a conflicted priest that. Um... <laughs> um, I, I think some of that like fades away in terms of his characterization. Like it's not going to be as defining as it seems to be at the very beginning. Though I will also note while we're talking about this, um, I'd forgotten uh, just how maybe spicy some of this film is for a 1993 Disney all ages family. family. And violent. It's, yeah. Oh yeah. There's, there's a lot of dead bodies. It's PG. I think it's a PG. Yeah. And like, I, I was reflect, I was thinking like, this is PG and D'Artagnan is walking through the palace and with just scores of dead bodies around. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a moment where, um, I wrote Rochefort. I, I'm not going to pronounce that one correctly. I know yeah. it, but it's not he, a smelly kind of a cheese. He, he comes into a room where I don't know, a few dozen of the Cardinals guards have been killed and Aramis is wiping blood off of his sword <laughs> i wonder i watched i saw that and i was like is that a trick of the light like is it just because they were like trying to f- film with candlelight or is that actually meant to be a red tinted sword and i'm i'm honestly not sure and we also we also know that like things on disney plus have been mm-hmm. kind of uh, you know, modified modified like um it was aramis's hair also a little longer in that scene so you couldn't see his butt i don't know but um <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I noticed that too, and was like, "Oh, I don't know that I've ever noticed." I mean, there is blood in this movie; like, people get yeah. stabbed, and and you see the you don't necessarily. It's not like Kill Bill, but you see that like their shirts are bloodied by it and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, and in the in the finale, there's the prison guard who gets that is horrific, spiked and then and then crushed. He gets open walled Iron Maiden in front of the yeah. whole audience, in front of God yeah. and everybody, and like blood trickles out of his mouth. It's like, oh. 
and he screams while impaled. That's a that's a horrific. Well, it scene. even open it opens with a torture scene. I mean, it's it's the shadows True. on the wall torture that, that, that's so, going on. But I, someone's I screaming. We call that we call that platonic torturing. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Plato's cave of torture chamber. <laughs> you know exactly what's happening. I'm so glad you both laughed at that. I was like, "There's a chance this doesn't hit. <laughs> there's a, there's a chance nobody uh, laughs at this." Uh, you, you got Plato's it. cave reference. Oh, thank you, thank uh, you. Uh, it's always gonna. I appreciate you both. That was that was excellent. Uh, so yeah, one I, less uh, mouth to feed. <laughs> I, I guess you know if we, we've dove in. The, the, the tone at times was a little surprising for the kind of all ages family adventure that it, it was definitely marketed as. But circling back to Aramis, anything else that stands out to you about Charlie Sheen and his performance of Aramis? I generally hate prequels, but I would kind of be into an Aramis as the Cardinal student prequel. I kind of want to know the story of how did this guy start his journey and then lose his faith and fall out with this guy. And like, one thing we haven't really touched on is that, you know, historically Cardinal Richelieu kind of a fan of the little guy, like this movie very much ends in great. The monarchy is intact, you know, (laughs) which as, as Americans were kind of like, well, eh, is that a great thing? Um, And Cardinal Richelieu was very much a a person who was kind of trying to distribute power. My, my read of of history, I'm not a, a historian, but my understanding is that Cardinal Richelieu was kind of trying to distribute power amongst the nobility and basically remove some of the power of the king and like not fully a democracy, but was kind of pushing more that direction than the other direction and got a lot of flack for it and then ended up the villain of this story, but isn't necessarily the villain. So I think a nuanced look, almost maybe like a breaking, you know, breaking Richelieu style of how did their relationship begin and then fall apart, I would be mm-hmm. fascinated by. I wonder if uh, like Disney producers looked around and said, we just made new- uh, newsies. Do we really want to be making films about the little guy standing up to the big corporations? <laughs> and they're like, you know what? Three Musketeers. Uh, this is going to be all about Keep maintaining the power, power structures. <laughs> yes. Um, I think that's really interesting because it, it, it illuminates for me. This film gives you like enough taste to say, you know, each of these four characters or, 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 you know, include the Cardinal, they could be the protagonist of a retelling of Mm -hmm. this story where you have backstory and flashbacks and things like that. And so you saying that about Aramis is like, I would, I would think that could actually be a really cool set of flashbacks in a, in an extended series where it's like, okay, this season it's actually Aramis is our main character and we're going to get flashbacks for his, for his life. And then the next season it's going to be Athos and you get flashbacks with him and, and Countess de Winter. And the next season it's, it's the Cardinal. So Ryan, you mentioned the French version that just came out. I, my understanding is Disney like internationally helped to finance that. And when I was doing like looking up trivia and I was looking up Disney three Musketeers, it came up several times that that French version is getting some additional, uh productions one of which is focusing on the countess and uh you know with the same cast and everyone yeah so it's it's a two it's a Mm two-parter um i think it's one of those like two-part movies that was filmed all at the same time but just being released on two different Mm -hmm. dates and they've released the first one they haven't released the second one yet i'm also i've i i i'm somewhat i somewhat object to you doing a two-part three musketeer story because that's the numbers there don't match three, three parts obviously <laughs> come on well it's like they in the 70s there was the three musketeers and then the four musketeers which if you're releasing those you're just gonna start confusing people it, the, <laughs> and and we all agree that the sequel to now we see now you see me should have been now you don't not yeah. now you see me too so mm-hmm. um, but with in terms of 
Aramis as a, a character, I think um, something that this discussion is actually helping me realize with the idea of like his moral conflict and his relationship with a powerful member of the church and something that's hinted to a lot in this movie is the Cardinal's lasciviousness, like the fact that he's constantly creeping on women. Like, and, mm-hmm. and I, it is over the top and it's a little more professionally done than like the Xena Hercules level of sound editing, but the way in which they like, proceed the cardinal approaching anybody with like a foam you know he's like he's a demon just like coming at folks um so they're constantly hinting that like he has not kept his vow of celibacy but you never actually see him like with a woman you never even really get a sense of like what his past with that is and i would love to see a prequel where it's like aramis is clearly somebody who struggles with his sexuality and, and his relationship to his faith and his you know his relationship with god and the Cardinal is somebody who has given up on that struggle and given into a different way of doing things. And that juxtaposition, I think, could be really interesting. And what I'm realizing in this conversation is Aramis is the Matt Murdock of this team. Oh, <laughs> the that Catholic is good. Guilt. Oh, your, your comps are really on point. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have it until this is. I needed the discussion to get there. I wouldn't have yeah. gotten there without the discussion. Now, the strange thing is, we're about to talk about Athos and his brooding. Which, when you talk about Matt Murdock, you want to mm-hmm. <laughs> acknowledge that hey, brooding is a key part of Matt Murdock as Daredevil. Uh, but it's a different kind of brooding that we're getting with Athos compared to yeah. the moral conflict. I mean, we haven't discussed it yet, so maybe I haven't had the revelation. But maybe he's more of a Bruce Wayne because he's a he's a rich kid who just now wants justice. Mm-hmm. That. I'm like starting to do like comic book comparisons. Cause I'm like, okay, well like clearly Aramis is Nightcrawler. And then it's like, well, you could have Logan be Athos in that case and do the brooding. Yeah. And it's like, that's a different kind of yeah. hauntedness to the, those or two if characters. We're keeping it, yeah. If we're keeping it X. Yeah. Which I guess you did keep it X-Men, but like Athos could also be a Colossus type. Although Colossus is very poetic. So Col- I mean, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Joseph, when you were talking about the adaptations of it, I don't think I've ever seen, an adaptation of three musketeers that's like modernized it's pretty much always set in like like in gunpowder days yeah yeah i I, uh, like i'm trying to think i was like being forward i won't be shocked if there's like something that's just fallen through mm -hmm. the cracks that that you know didn't really make an impact in pop culture but when i picture three musketeers adaptations it's exactly what you're describing but but i kind of want i kind of want one I kind of want, I, I thought about, I'm glad you brought that up, brought this up. Cause I thought about this while watching and I didn't want to, I, I thought it might be a bit too far afield, but I, now that you've said it, I'm going to say it too. Um, Taron Edgerton did that uh, Robin Hood movie. Mm-hmm. It was really bad, right? <laughs> I think it was just called Robin Hood. I mean, talking about uh, uh, properties that are constantly in adaptations, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, at least I did not think it was a, a good movie. But the one thing I liked about it, it was still set in medieval England. But one of the, and I didn't absolutely hate it. I just didn't think it was a very good movie. And it could, I don't know that it could have been better, but I wanted it to be better because I like Robin Hood as a story. But they, they, you the way they film Robin Hood's scenes in the Crusades is is ab, as if he's in like modern Middle Eastern city fighting infantry with like snipers and you know like going through, through the streets and covering each other and like everybody's firing their arrows way too fast but it makes it feel more like machine gun fire and so it's not like necessarily making it modern but it's like providing a modern context for what these historic battles might have felt like that is a little bit more familiar mm. to a modern audience. And I wonder if there's maybe a way to circle the square there with a musketeer. I mean, 
the thing we haven't mentioned is like musketeers as a unit they're named that because they were musket guys, not sword guys. <laughs> but it's always sword fighting. It it's end. always sword fighting. Because <laughs> yeah. sword fighting is more romantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and for film, <clears throat> a sword fight is so much better than people shooting muskets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, just, just visually, the, the, the interest level is so much higher uh, for, for that. So, yeah, it is an interesting thing. Um, all right. Let's let's tackle Athos. Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, Jack Bauer here. Um, he he really does get like a thirty minute sequence where it's like this is his episode. This is his his movie for thirty minutes. Yeah, and uh, I I think Ryan, you mentioned something uh, at the top about like th- there's a little bit of odd pacing uh, to, to to some of this film. And, yeah, it's not the most strict three act structure, but I think that's a function of it being a soap opera. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think some of that odd pacing is that sudden shift to to Athos. Athos um, gets a side quest, if we're going to put it in RPG terms. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing that definitely does stand out for Athos is just the uh, the brooding that Kiefer Sutherland is, really leads into in his interpretation of this character. And the um, alcoholism. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, I mean, there. I mean, are any are any of the musketeers safe from that accusation? <laughs> I, well, it's, it's like uh, Porthos becomes the fun drunk, and Athos becomes the 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 the, the moody drunk. <laughs> um, anything that stands out for you in Kiefer Sutherland's performance, or, or uh, just about this version of Athos? He's the one who talks about duty the most. Mm-hmm. And we do get like like I think he gets. If I, if I, I mean, okay, we, we, we scheduled this, uh, several times and I have not watched this within the week that we're recording. So <laughs> I, I'm trying to remember he gets like the, some of the monologues, right. About, um, I mean, both with his, his ex-wife and then also about kind of the, uh, like you said, the, the, the appeal to duty here. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I think, I mean, I think he's a guy who feels like he's, he at one point had a duty in his life which was to be a noble and to, to marry well and to, to continue his lineage. And he failed and he failed in part because he married someone that maybe wasn't uh, the person that he thought they were. And he, uh, as a younger man made the maybe brash. I don't know. He may, he made, he's a guy who doesn't go back on his decisions. And so he made this decision to be like, no, this woman is out of my life. I'm done with her. Get, get lost kicked by the wayside i'm gonna give up my lands my title my name and i'm gonna join the musketeers and so then the duty to become a musketeer became the most important thing for him and so you know you have the like theme for him being brooding i think the theme for him could be duty i think it also Mm -hmm. be fanaticism like Mm -hmm. he's a fanatic like he he believes one thing he believes it wholly he doesn't he's uncompromising he never is there a scene in the movie where he compromises he the scene that always sticks out to me for Athos, the most important scene, we, we haven't talked about my favorite scene in the movie, but but I think one of the most important scenes to understand the character of Athos is when they get ambushed after the uh, Cardinal releases all the homing pigeons. Mm-hmm. And it's when him and D'Artagnan, they split up, him and D'Artagnan split off to from Porthos and Aramis, and they get pinned down by musketeers. I don't know how else to refer to the people shooting at them with muskets, but um, <laughs> the Cardinal's guards, mercenaries, somebody. And Athos is willing to Athos's horse gets shot and he's willing to hold the line. So D'Artagnan can complete the mission on his horse. That is still doing okay. And D'Artagnan is trying to argue that, no, they should stay and fight. And Athos points the gun straight at D'Artagnan's face and says, go or I will shoot you myself. 
And so, like, I think Athos is a fanatic. Yeah, I think that uncompromising that that you said, uh, and we see, it, you know, that scene um, shows that you just described. It shows how that um, uncompromising nature uh, can guide him in his actions, but also hurt his relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. He, um, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but like he lacks finesse, meaning like he cannot manipulate a situation. All he can do is like a straightforward approach. That's not to say that he won't be sneaky in a way, but he like, he can't connive. Yeah. And it's different than what we were talking about with D'Artagnan, where D'Artagnan just kind of throws himself in uh, <laughs> to, to, to everything. Um, and, and sometimes makes a fool of himself uh, because of that. Cause we don't see Athos making a fool of himself. Um, it, 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 it's something a little different in what you're describing with that. Uh, that directness that is part of his character. Okay. We're talking about the three musketeers, which of course means we talk about D'Artagnan and the three musketeers, but it would be, I feel almost criminal to not take a moment to talk about Tim Curry's performance uh, Mm -hmm. in this film before we wrap up our discussion. I mean, you know what I would say about Tim Curry's discussion, the discussion of Tim Curry's performance, please. That can be arranged. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Andrew. It's okay. I can still hear. (laughs) <laughs> it's my uh, favorite it might be my favorite line in the whole movie when he oh, and he like kicks the he foot kicks the, he kicks the ottoman mm-hmm. <laughs> so good um he he has this tremendous balance in this movie where he gets to play it like he's in a movie but but it's because like i don't know he just like he knows when to just lean into it a little bit to be like this is for the audience this mm-hmm, isn't storytelling mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. is this is performance and he just has these moments where he's like poor timing and it's like that's too modern but i <laughs> but i'm not upset <laughs> yeah uh he is on the cusp of feeling like he is playing a role in a film with a different tone than everyone else like he's just about in a different movie with how much he leans into the mustache twirling side of villainy with this. Uh, Mm -hmm. And yet it's Tim Curry. It's his voice. He's wearing this fantastic costume that lets him like surge through rooms. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The the moment I always, when he sits on the throne right before that can be arranged the way he drapes his cloak (laughs) over the throne as if like, I almost wonder if there was a director's note of being like, your cloak is taking over both thrones. Like yes. go like drape it over both seats of power so that it is obvious that you are inviting the queen along for the ride, but she gets to do nothing once you take over. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's incredible. Yeah. And, it, 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 and, and the it way looked, he plays with the, the, the practice sword and the, and the fencing scene. Oh, so good. Yeah. I remember there was a, something that Tim Curry tweeted that went viral where someone said something like, um, like, Oh, I wish we had more Tim Curry. And he directly responded, about like I've played this many roles, <laughs> you know, yeah. I've, I, I've done all these things I'm in my like life. Five hundred credits. What what more did you want? And you see this, and it's like I wish there was more Tim Curry. <laughs> like I do yeah. wish we had more because uh, it's just delightful to see him on screen and just seemingly having the time of his life. And there's so much that is like in the way he enunciates the words, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in this his line readings are so delicious to watch. The the moment I think that stands out to me the most for him is when they are talking about the sniper and the sniper's like shot through a, a portrait, a massive like <laughs> seven foot portrait of the king. 
Which, and, how many hours of work was just shot through uh, with that for uh, a painting that size? Well, um, I, I, I think about that stuff these days. I think about the stuff that, like, D'Artagnan cut through a rope while he was riding through that French village. Those ropes were made by hand, too. Yeah. Like, everything. That's, that's that a, they how work was that? You know, and, and, yeah. How, I, that was going to be reused for years for this poor worker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. But you're right. Yeah, it's all there's a lot of hard people's work destroyed in this movie. The um and and so it's the there's just such a weird like sinister quality in that because he says to double the sniper's pay and it's like why is he being generous? He's the bad guy. <laughs> and it's such a weird moment to be like, "Wait. Yeah, why is he being so so cool about that?" He's like, this is exactly what I want, and I will pay twice as much for it. But then also, it's when he says, I want this painting hung in my chambers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with, with the, the bullet hole uh, in the head of the king. I teach horses to fly and pigs to dance and keep the moon tucked tightly beneath my robes. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. It's just... Uh, and then And then when you learn that, like, the real historical figure was like simply trying to limit the complete absolute authority of the king and like wasn't wasn't trying to kill him was just trying to be like maybe let other like the people who know their constituents if we want to refer to nobles as in that those generous terms like make some other decisions um yeah it's fascinating it's a fascinating juxtaposition between real history and this actor's bonkers portrayal but that is the most captivating part of the movie i I mean you know the whole like uh aramis saying you'll then you'll answer to god he goes you first and (laughs) shoots him (laughs) well and i want to like narrow in on what you said about like this is the most captivating part of this film this was like the all-star cast for 1993 and i mean all of these actors have had long careers uh you know going forward it's like there there was no misfire in this cast and there's still something that's so magnetic about Tim Curry's presence uh, that he really is um, it, it, like when I think back on this film, I can picture him as the Cardinal faster than I could picture you know, Chris O'Donnell as D'Artagnan. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I, I think we're just about at the end. Are there any final thoughts you want to share about the 1993 adaptation of the three Musketeers? Well, okay. So I want to talk about very briefly the the carriage chase scene when they steal the cardinal's carriage mm-hmm. um because i think that scene is so fun because it's that is the moment where like the, the three musketeers have bought into okay d'artagnan's part of the club come on let's go save the dumb kid from get his head cut off and that was the scene where i noticed a joke i've never noticed in the in the x many number of times i've watched this film and it's there's a popping sound and D'Artagnan says, they're shooting at us from the front seat next to Athos. And then Porthos pops up and says, gentlemen, champagne. He and popped the cork. I never got that he was, the sound was him popping the cork. I thought the sound, was, they are being chased by guys shooting at them. I never got that the sound was them, pop, was Porthos popping the cork. Mm-hmm. And and one of my wife's favorite jokes is like, like really Porthos, we're in the middle of a chase. You're right. In the middle of a chase, something red. And he goes back into the carriage to get something red. Um, and I, I, that scene is so fun because it's like, it's, it's everything we discuss about these characters. It's the Cardinal is furious mm-hmm. and demanding people take care of things for him, but not doing nothing himself. It's Athos taking command of the situation, passing off command to various other members of his team as is appropriate based on his 
perception, it's D'Artagnan in over his head, but along for the ride, like literally along for the ride. Like I'm here, like, let's figure it out. And it's Aramis finding a bunch of gold coins in the, the Cardinal's carriage and being like, oh yeah, we got to give these to the people. Like we can't keep these. These are not for us. These are for the people. And Porthos is just like, what booze does the Cardinal have? <laughs> so, <laughs> I, you know, to me, that scene exemplifies so much of how these characters sing in this particular version of the adaptation that that sort of is my moment that I, I just thought all the protagonists we've discussed really came together as a, a, a team, a unit. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is a scene that definitely like stands out as um, like, it's, it's a high energy point for the film, right? Like, like, Oh, everyone's together now. Uh, whereas like early on, it's like the getting to know you, we're going to fight before we could be friends and the classic team up style of everything. And this is the point where it's like, yes, you know, our, t- our team is together and they're on an adventure. And it's kind of a long set piece. Yeah. I think they spend more time on that set piece than a modern film would do. I think so too. I think you're right. Andrew, do you have any final thoughts? And I, I think Ryan has summed it up really well. And I would hate to sully uh, the <laughs> summary of that sequence no, and, and the highlighting. Oh, well, I'm, um, I'm, I'm going to sully it real quick. Cause I wanted to, <laughs> to read a little bit of the lyrics from the pop song that comes at the oh. end. Cause I was, I was listening to it as the credits rolled and I thought, does this make sense? <laughs> the uh, the Brian Adams song that plays over the credits that became a number one hit with uh, Rod Stewart and Sting also joining in on the performance. Uh, I- I'm not going to try and, and give you any of the, the melody to this uh, because, of course, that's because it, would, it might cost us money, not because I, I can't carry a tune. Um, so I'm just going to read some of these lyrics here. Um, I'll be there when you need me. Yeah. When honor's at stake, this valet will make. Yeah. That it is all for one and all for love. It's all for love. Let the one you hold be the one you want, the one you need, because if it's all for one, it's one for all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts on uh, on uh, All for Love, the, the hit song that plays over the credits of this film? <laughs> I don't know what it what else was released at that time in 1993. Um, but it, it feels completely disconnected from what this movie is. Yes, because <laughs> yes. like, it's not this a love is, story. This is Nobody not a romantic knows. movie. It's I mean it's a bromance. Like it's D'Artagnan, it, but it's also like it's the the three the actual tit- titular three musketeers are they already love each other? Like they mm-hmm. are already in love as a brotherhood as a member of this core. And it's D'Artagnan falling in love with them, but falling in love with them in sort of like a kid brothery way, where it's like his love is not super sophisticated. He just really wants to be a part of this team. Yeah. <laughs> like the king offers him anything he wants, and he says, Can I join your club of bodyguards? <laughs> that is a that is objectively a terrible choice. <laughs> like D'Artagnan could have been a wealthy lander. Yes. Like it, it reminds me of, of generational wealth for him and his family. Yeah. Por- Porthos's advice is go home, marry a wife, raise fat babies, live a good long life. That is what he should have asked for in the final scene. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm just going to uh, leave us with this last bit of wisdom from the song. When there's someone that should know, then just let your feelings show and make it all for one and all for love. Clearly the message of this film. <laughs> uh, I, I, that phrase even like all for one and all for love. I'm like, that, what is this? <laughs> what is this song? It's terrible. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, but it's a number one hit. I'm sure they're still making money on that song. It is not the reason I returned to this movie. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Listeners, thanks for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice and leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Ryan, what would you like to plug? I do a podcast called Science Sort of. We've uh, not been able to put out an episode for a little bit just for various reasons, but we have a great backlog of episodes. So if you are a person who is interested in any kind of science and like if there's, you know, you want to if we, we had a record I'll, 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 behind the scenes, we had a little bit of a recording issue this episode. The uh, one of the most prominent recording issues I've had in the history of my podcast was with Andy Ware, the guy who wrote The Martian. So if you want to go find that episode, I think it's like uh, three sixteen or something like that. Um, so so we we talked to the guy who wrote The Martian, and it was great. And we almost Isn't lost that it episode. Always the way though, like when you get the big name guests, that's when all the bugs come out in the recording software. Exactly. But <laughs> if there's a guy who knows about troubleshooting bugs, <laughs> it's Andy Ware. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, scienceorb.com is where you can find that. I'm also a frequent guest on the ifanboy.com podcast. And, um, you know, I, I must admit, I'm kind of not doing much social media these days. Can't can't say I'm a huge fan of X. <laughs> yeah, it's it's more like um, social media doesn't want us anymore. It seems. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I'm not like... I'm angry about a lot of stuff, but not a lot of stuff I want to post about on social media. So I guess there's no place for me there. Um, <laughs> oh, well. So <laughs> find me, find me. Uh, my website is ryanhap.com. Uh, that's R-Y-A-N-H-A-U-P-T.com. And um, you can generally just, I'm not, I'm not that hard to find. And I, I like, uh, I, hopefully this isn't the last time I'm here. So find me again on the protagonist podcast next week. All right. Well, thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. All for one. And all for love. No! No! (laughs) How could you do that to me? We're doing that again. All for one. And one for all. all. Yeah. Thank you. I've, I've got that. Okay, cool. I didn't. I didn't seem to lose connection, so I apologize for whatever happened oh, there. But I don't know. Hey, you know how it is with podcasting. I'm sure this <laughs> sure, to you. I sh- <laughs> it, oh, yeah, sure has. Okay, cool. Um, All right. Yeah, I'm. I'm happy to roll with it. All right. Uh, we'll just do jump in here then.